Good morning, friends. Uh, doing church online sure is different, isn't it? It is for us here in a largely empty room. And uh, as it's been mentioned many times this morning, we don't know what you look like back at home. It's quite possible that you're in their pajamas, maybe still in bed even. You know who you are. But whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're wearing, I'm glad you tuned in. So take a moment to turn to your neighbor, or if you're by yourself, say this to yourself. Say, it's good to see you in church this morning. You look good today. Thanks for wearing clothes. Just put it out there. And I'm glad you're here because we're starting a new series where we're going to study the, the New Testament letter that Paul wrote the church in Philippi. It's an amazing letter. It may have more statements of raw spiritual power than any book in the New Testament. It's filled with themes of indestructible joy and, and the power of Christ living in us. We, we've got this COVID-19 lockdown going on and people are asking the question, when is this going to end? <laughs> Am I going to survive this? And, and I believe the encouragement and direction from Philippians can actually help us not just survive, but thrive. So question, are you up for this? Let's dive in. So I want to start by way of introduction by looking at five remarkable features of this book, five things that kind of set it apart. First of all, there's the place. Paul sent this letter to the church in Philippi, which was the very first European church. A couple of years ago, Angel and I were on a, a archaeological tour of Greece and Turkey, and one of the highlights for us, for sure, was visiting the ruins, the place where this church was, at Philippi. It's located in the northeastern Greece, which was one of the region was once the region of Macedonia. It's a region rich in natural resources. There be gold in them, their hills, and it hit the map in 356 BC when Philip II, who was Alexander the Great's father, conquered the city and renamed it Philippi in honor of, well, himself. I guess you can see where young Alex got his humble demeanor. It was wealthy, it was a world-class city, it was strategically placed between uh, the east and the west, between Asia and Europe, and uh, it was, had a nearby port, which was Neapolis, so many people would travel through there, and that's where God led Paul to plant a church, a place that would have access to millions of people. And, and I wonder, bringing this home to, to our neighborhood here for, the, for this morning, what is your setting, your setting, where, where you live, where you work, what's your context, school? Right now, maybe you think it's, well, it's home, that's, that's my setting. But why might, might God have placed you where he has? You, you might not think where you've been put has, has been that important, but as followers of Jesus, we can be confident that God has put us where, we, where he's put us. And God gives each of us a unique kind of one-of-a-kind opportunity to bring encouragement and, and, and blessing to others around us that no one else will. I mean, think of family and, and our friends and family and, and, and coworkers, neighbors. I, I was thinking this week of a neighbor friend of ours named Fran. Fran, she lived across the street from us in our old home in Port Coquitlam. She very soon became Grandma Fran to our kids. Years we were in, we were in years where we kind of got to be in, in community with her, and as God gave us opportunity, we sought to show love to Fran in all kinds of practical ways. For a couple of years, 
uh, Angel, uh, on Sunday afternoons, she would grab an extra loaf of bread or some veggies from, from our church outreach program, and she'd bring those home, and, and she'd go over to visit Fran, and she'd have a cup of tea with Fran. And we found out through that that Fran had, somewhere along the way, trusted Christ. And, and, and we felt like over those 15 years we were with Fran, we got to kind of fan that into flame some. We'd, we'd pray for Fran, and we'd pray with Fran. And Fran turned 92 this last December 31st. And, and seven days later, on January 7th, Fran went home to be with Jesus. Angel, uh, myself, and our son Caleb got to be in the room with her the night that she would go home to heaven. And what a privilege as we were able to sing to her, it is well with my soul. And I like to think God put us on that street for those years, partly so that we could have some eternal impact on Fran. And so when I think of where God has placed me and where God has has maybe placed you, I feel like God has put us there for a reason. As we love our neighbors, we don't know who else God has put in their lives, but you are, and I am, and we have access to people that, that literally no one else does. That's, that's just not by accident. God does that. Second feature of the Philippian church, this, this was a remarkable group of people. We, we read about the start of the church in Acts 16, and it was begun with, with three individuals. There was Lydia, who was a wealthy Jewish businesswoman. Uh, and then there was a Greek slave girl. And there was a Roman uh, jailer who would have been middle class. So you've got three different nationalities, you know, Jew, Greek, Roman. You've got two genders. You've got three levels of society represented, rich, middle class, and poor. And I think it demonstrates so well the, the all-embracing nature of the Christian faith. One of the unique features of Christianity is the way it has of, of drawing people together from all different types of, of backgrounds and, and, and ages and races and colors all brought together in this, this Jesus-centered community. I, I love that about the Christian faith. It's this big, broad table, and, and everybody's invited to the meal. Isn't that good? Third, the letter also has a remarkable purpose. If you read Paul's other letters, the, the letters often are kind of corrective in nature. You know, a church was messing up or they were involved in, in some kind of heresy or, or bad theology. They're being, being influenced by false teachers. And Paul was often writing to challenge their wrong thinking or practice. But, but Philippians is different. There's some correction, but it's by far a letter of thanks and friendship. It's, it's written with this warm, informal tone. And it, and it speaks of Paul's close relationship with this church. And it seems the primary purpose of the letter was to simply encourage them. That's why I think it's a, a good thing for us to spend some weeks in this letter. I mean, who couldn't use some encouragement right now, right? I think we'll find it in Paul's words to the Philippians. And this leads us to a fourth feature of the letter, and that's the theme of joy. Verse 4 reads, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. The term joy or rejoice is found some 16 times in this letter. It's remarkable because of actually where Paul's writing the, the letter. He's writing it from prison. 
He's, he's in his own version of lockdown. Maybe some of us can actually feel like we can relate to Paul's house arrest right now. But, but his circumstances, the point of this, weren't that joyful. And, and, and it tells us something kind of important, that our circumstances, our joy, isn't dependent on what we're going through at the moment. They're dependent on our relationship with Christ. Can, I wonder if you can relate to this at all. I, I remember when my grandfather got cancer, prostate cancer, when I was 18. My, my grandpa and I were, were very close. Uh, he would take me out to his farm, and we'd spend all kinds of time together. Uh, and every time I saw him, and when we'd visit his home, um, he would come. He was, he was a barrel-chested man, and he was quite short. But he would grab me around my waist, and he'd lift me off the ground, and then I'd lift my grandpa off the ground. It was so good. But he got sick, and, and through his whole decline over, over six months, every time I saw him, we kind of thought it could be the last, and my grandpa would weep every time we drove away. And we received word on Christmas Day that grandpa had died in the night. And, and I remember throughout this day, which, which should have been one of deep, deep sadness, I can remember how God was, was very present and near to me. There was, there was joy in the middle of it all. And this is almost one of the most in, indescribable things of, of the Christian faith. And, and Paul, from a unique position of imprisonment, talks with authority about the joy that we can have in Christ. Finally, the letter's remarkable because of the opening greeting of the letter. And in most of Paul's letters, uh, Paul begins with Paul the Apostle. He kind of lays out his credentials so that people will listen to him. It's like me saying to my son, boys, I'm your father. Now hear this. Paul, Paul doesn't do this here. It's not Paul the Apostle. It's Paul the Servant. And he addresses the letter to the saints at Philippi, to the saints in Christ Jesus. I mean, he could have said St. Paul to all the servants, but he doesn't put himself above the people at all. And he addresses the letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus. By the way, saints are simply people that have been set aside for a special purpose. And he calls all the Christians at Philippi saints. They're saints of Jesus. That describes their relationship with Christ. And, and folks, that's really what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's to be in Christ Jesus, to be in this close relationship to Christ. Jesus described it like a, a vine to, to the branch or branches to the vine, this close integrated relationship, that, that kind of closeness that's at the heart of being a Christian. Then he gives a, a greeting or, or this blessing in his letter, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting here, Paul takes a, a variation of the Greek greeting, grace, and combines it with the traditional Hebrew greeting, which was shalom, or peace, and he puts them together, and in doing so, he's kind of summing up Christianity. Grace is all that God has, has done for us. Peace is what we then experience out of a relationship with Christ. Uh, grace is such a great word. Amazing grace, we sing. <laughs> It's kind of difficult to define, but basically it means undeserved love. It's the love that we receive from God through Jesus. Uh, Nikki Gumbel, a great communicator, once had a, had a definition of grace that I really like. It's kind of fun. He says, if someone punches you in the face, 
and you don't punch them back. That's mercy. And then he says, if, if someone punches you in the face and you don't punch them back and, and then you say it's okay, our relationship's fine, that's forgiveness. And then if someone punches you in the face and you don't punch them back and you say the relationship is fine and then you buy them an ice cream, that's grace. And by the way, grace is such a great gift because whether you're a brand new believer in Jesus, a, a brand new follower, just at the start of a walk with God, or whether you've been journeying with Jesus for a lot of years, we still all need grace. I, I love how Dallas Willard puts it. He says, the greatest saints are not those who need less grace, but those who consume the most grace who indeed are, are most in need of grace, those who are saturated by grace in every dimension of their being, grace to them is like breath. So may God give us more of his grace because that's his love to us. He gives us so much more than we deserve. It's, it's not just that he doesn't give us what we do deserve, but, but actually he lavishes his love on us. That's his grace. And then peace. We've talked a lot about peace in, in recent weeks. Jesus coming and, and speaking his words of peace to the disciples in the locked room. Peace is what we experience in our relationship with God. It's that sense of well-being, that sense of completeness. You know, peace with God, peace with, with each other, inner peace. And Paul says it all comes from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the five remarkable features of this letter. Now, I'd like us to dive in and, and look briefly at three insights from the rest of our text, three observations of Paul towards the people of Philippi. First of all, Paul had a heart of confidence in the power of God. Verse three reads, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a pretty momentous last line. Uh, it's so good. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You see, Paul, because he founded the church in Philippi 12 years before, he'd remember that the church was begun by the power of God. Uh, you go back to the, the very first days of the church, as you see in Acts 16, and Paul was going to go to Asia, but, but the door seemed to be shut. And one night, Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man saying, please come help us. And, and Paul realized this was God guiding him. And so he, he goes, he, he heads over to Philippi. And normally when he arrived in a town or a city, he'd go straight to the synagogue, but there were so few Jews there, there was no synagogue. So he goes down to the river where there's a small group of women praying. By the way, again, our highlight of, of visiting Philippi was actually visiting this little river. My wife just uh, thought of these women that were sitting by this river and listening to Paul, and she went and stuck her feet in the water. It was such a precious moment for us. But he tells these women about Jesus. But there's one woman named Lydia, and she hears the message that Paul preaches, and she receives the message, and she also opened her home. She says, come stay with me. Became kind of a, a center of that church. And then as Paul is moving about Philippi, looking for opportunities to tell about Jesus, 
he kept being followed by this slave girl, a girl with a background in the occult and and fortune-telling, and we're told that she's possessed by an evil spirit. And Paul kind of gets worn out by her constant sort of following her, and, and he says, in the name of Jesus, come out. And this woman was freed from this spirit, but she also lost her supernatural powers, and and this made her slave owners furious. And they had Paul arrested, uh, taken to the authorities, and they, he and Silas were then stripped and flogged, and they were put in prison. But in the middle of the night, there was an earthquake. All the prisoners were, were set free. And the prison warden would have lost his life because losing prisoners was a capital offense. So he was about to take his own life, but Paul intervenes. He says, hang on, stop. We're all here. Don't worry. And the prison officer is so stunned by this whole encounter that that he says, what must I do to be saved? What an amazing thing. And Paul seizes the opportunity that God gives him and he leads him to Jesus And his family come to Christ and they form the church. This is the power of God who who started the church. And because Paul had seen God's power at the start, he was confident that the good work that God had, had used in starting this church, in the same power, he'd finish it. And so he says, don't give up. You know, God is gonna do this. Now I wonder uh, for you, for me, anyone here ever started a good work and not finished it? You know, like begun a, <laughs> begun a diet uh, or an exercise program, uh, made a list of home repairs uh, that you're going to do. You planned uh, to maybe get a new financial management approach, uh, or you made a commitment that this year would be the year that you, you read the Bible more or prayed more or just purely read more books. How many of you have ever started a good work and then you procrastinated and didn't finish it? Raise your hand. <laughs> You know what? God has never done that. God has never done that. Whatever God starts, God completes. God is a finisher. Our our God is a finisher. And I know Paul would be able to say of you what, what he was able to say to the believers in Philippi. What God has begun in you, he will bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You can count on him. Talk about an important promise to hold on to, especially in days like ours, in difficult days like this. Because as we know, Christians can lose their jobs. They they can lose their money. They can lose their health or their freedom. They can even lose their lives. But what you can never lose is what Jesus gives you, the eternal life he gives. Jesus said, no one will ever snatch you from my hand. You can be sure that, that what God has begun in you, he will complete in the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Now, secondly, Paul had a heart of compassion. Verse 7 and 8, it says, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains, in prison, or defending and confirming the gospel... All of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loved the Philippians. He says, it's the love of Jesus, the heart of Jesus that I have for you. Folks, God loves us so much. St. Augustine once said, the whole Bible tells us nothing but of Christ's, God's love for us. 
Paul says, I long for you all with the, the affection of Christ Jesus. You see that with his, his love for the Roman jailer who had tortured him. He, he could have taken revenge and said, go ahead, take your life. Instead, he leads him to Jesus, another example of grace. But it's this, this idea of compassion, it, it's always been a marker of a thriving church. And the church has honestly, it's shone brightest during times of crisis in our world. During the plagues in the second century, it was the Christians who were the frontline healthcare workers. I mean, the plague would come and everyone would leave the town. They'd, 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 they'd head out, they'd flee, but the Christians would stay behind and they'd care for the sick and they'd, they'd care for the dying. And then fascinating to me in, in Acts 11, the church in Antioch hears of a coming famine and they hear of other communities who are suffering or, or struggling and they're in need, you know, they're going through something difficult. So what does the church do? They take an offering and they designate Paul and Barnabas and they send them with a bunch of cash to Jerusalem in a relief effort. Know what they didn't do. They didn't spend a lot of time on grand theories. They didn't say, we've got to figure this out. You know, like why this is happening or what does this say about God or about all this horrible stuff that's going on? Rather, the church responds in a very hands-on way. And a lot of good comes out of that. But there's this instant practical response, and that's where it's at. And, and we're in a day where, where we as a church, we need to continue to respond to the, the world's health and economic issues and crisis with that kind of compassion because that's the heart of Jesus, because that's the compassion of Jesus. And Paul had God's heart for the people of Philippi. Finally, we see that, uh, that Paul was concerned for the priorities of growth. Verse 9 to 11 And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He he prays quite particularly here. Here's what's really important. Number one, I'm going to pray for your love to increase. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Grow in love, that your love may abound more and more and more, that your love for God might increase, that your love for other people might, might improve, go up. That's the first thing he prays. Second thing, you want to grow as a Christian, you need to grow in knowledge and depth of insight. He, he's not talking about academic knowledge, he's talking about personal knowledge, that they would grow in their knowledge of God and they'd grow in their knowledge of one another. You know this, I think, that love and knowledge go hand in hand, just like in a relationship. The more you know someone, the more you can love them. The more they open up their lives to you, the more you can love them. And the same goes in our relationship with God. As we get to know God, as we spend time with God, we, we get to know him. And this is actually why we emphasize meeting in small groups in a church, because this is how you get, we get to know one another. We want to be more than just acquaintances. We're, our groups... Small groups are important because that's where you really get to know someone, and through that knowledge, our love increases. Thirdly, he prays for growth in holiness, that you may be pure and and holy in Christ, or blameless in Christ. The word pure means unmixed. Inner purity stemming from having the right motives. 
The word blameless refers to an outward life. He prays that they will be both inwardly and outwardly holy. Uh, One of my favorite stories is from John of Kronstadt. He was a 19th century Russian Orthodox priest at the time when alcohol abuse was just rampant in Russia. And none of the priests would venture out of their churches to help the people. They, They waited for people to come to them. But John... I mean, compelled by love, he went out into the streets and, and people said that he would lift these foul-smelling, hungover people uh, out of the gutters and he'd cradle them in his arms and he'd say to them, this is beneath your dignity. You are meant to house the fullness of God. Talk about a holy life that John had, both inward and, and outward. And, and he called these individuals he was meeting on the street to holiness and to wholeness. And so Paul, that's his heart. He prays that they'll grow in love and knowledge and holiness. And then verse 11, be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Righteousness means having a right relationship with God and having a right relationship with other people. And that's a very fruitful life, Paul would say. I read about a pastor in Uganda. He, he told about how one time he was going off to preach and he and his wife had this huge argument. This happens to pastors sometime. I'm not saying anyone by name. But as he's uh, going off to preach, uh, he felt God prompting him, you should go back and pray with your wife. But he found himself arguing with God. I, I've got to be preaching in 20 minutes. He said to God, he says, I'll, I'll go preach and then I'll pray with my wife. And he felt God saying, Okay, you go off and preach, and I'll stay with your wife. There's good fruit in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. But Paul completes that thought with the words that comes through Jesus Christ. And those are the words that appear more in this beginning passage than anything else. Jesus Christ. Six times he mentions Jesus. Jesus is the key. For Paul to preach the gospel is to, to preach Jesus. Jesus is the one who, in the power of, of God, will bring completion to what he started. It, it's Christ's heart that Paul has and wants us to have. And, and friends, that's the, the secret to thriving in life and thriving in our faith. It's not us, it's him. It's as we open up our heart to Jesus, if I can be so crass, it's, he's the fertilizer. <laughs> He's the sunshine. He's the source in the soil of our hearts and our lives that causes us to flourish and live and thrive no matter what the circumstances are. Fascinating to me, Arthur Burns, a Jewish economist who was advisor to many U.S. presidents a long time ago, and he was once asked to pray at a gathering of Christian leaders Stunning his hosts, he prayed this way. He said this, Lord, I pray that Jews would come to know Jesus Christ. And I pray that Buddhists would come to know Jesus Christ. And I pray that Muslims would come to know Jesus Christ. And then most stunning of all, he prayed. And Lord, I pray Christians would come to know Jesus Christ. Not so different from Paul's prayer. What Paul prays, when Paul prays that we'll become more loving, more knowledgeable, more, more holy, in other words, that we become more like Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray.
Father, this is our prayer today, that you would give to each of us faith, confidence, that you will bring to completion what you have begun in us. Would you give us your love, a greater knowledge of you, and that you would make us holy, giving us fruitful lives marked by right relationship with you and with others. And I pray, Lord, in this season where many of us feel like we might be in a prison kind of like Paul, fill our lives with your grace and your peace and your joy. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. It's been so good that you've been with us this morning. I'm glad you tuned in, and I pray that you'd experience God blessing you even in this moment. He loves you so very much. I want to remind you that right now we've got our virtual lobby that's going to be starting up in just a moment, so you can tune in. Zoom links should be in your feed or on our website. Love to see you there. And I uh, want to remind you that we, we pray, and so you, you got a prayer need, please reach out to us. you got any kind of need, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Now, would you receive this blessing, the blessing from Paul to the Philippians once more. And so now, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Take care, folks. God bless.